When I was very young, there was a television program called The Big Picture. Most people, we have to realize, live in the little picture, with small ideas and small goals, all of them short-term. But some do live in the big picture, considering their life as a whole, extending through many years, realizing that the small aspects will be forgotten, but the overall character of their life will determine their future beyond this world as well as within it. Having this perspective, I wanted to be a living sacrifice, a living offering to God. I wanted to be able to stand unashamedly before the face of God and truthfully say, Behold, I have forsaken all and followed thee, just as the apostles said to Jesus. To be like Christ, not just in glory, but in living sacrifice, like him, as St. Paul said regarding Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. This was my aspiration, and that is the aspiration of monastics throughout the ages. Monastic life is a life of undivided loyalty to the one. Jesus himself warns us that no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. The religious egotist considers himself wiser than Christ, whose words he tactfully ignores utterly. He knows better. He can certainly please himself and please God, but he forgets that Jesus spoke about serving. Those who love cannot run the risk of despising their beloved and clinging to their own egoic God. How often we hear statements about what God does not expect of us and what does not matter to God. The problem is when most people say God, they really mean their ego God. And that, of course, expects and cares about nothing that does not serve its own desires. There is a very revealing incident in the Gospel of St. John. It says this, Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, a supper. and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then said one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. Because spikenard was extremely costly, it was kept in a stone flask with only a tiny hole through which it could be shaken out a drop at a time 
to avoid using any more than was exactly desired. But like St. Mary Magdalene, the lovers of God cannot endure to shake out the perfume of their love drop by grudging drop. Rather, they break the stone of egoic thrift and pour out their life unreservedly as an offering to him of their soul's love. The Judases, who through their keeping of the bag of material life, have come to despise the master of spirit and cling to the lordship of this world, have always raised a fuss about the waste of monastic life, accusing its adherents of being extremists, fanatics, and even worse. There is a lot of talk on their part about helping others and doing good to the world as the opposing ideal. But as St. John points out, the real motive of their protest is the fact that they steal from God that sacrifice, which is a reasonable duty as well. Just as worldlings make their choice of service, so also do the monastics. Above all the rationalizing protests of their opponents, they raise the song of victory. I am my beloved's, and he is mine. Here is a picture of monastic life, as seen by the beloved apostle in his vision recorded in the book of Revelation. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood upon the Mount Zion, and with him a hundred forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand who were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Of course, this also applies to women who did not defile themselves with men. One of my favorite songs in the church I grew up in began, Since Jesus gave his life for me, should I not give him mine? I'm consecrated, Lord, to thee. I shall be wholly thine. The final line of the refrain said, I will hear thy faintest call. How perfectly and intently attuned, then, must my inner ear ever be to the divine voice. Yet I had read in the gospel the following regarding the kingdom of God. A certain man made a great supper and bade many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. 
And the Lord said unto the servant, I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. The ground represents material possessions and objects, involvement which keeps us from heeding the great call into the kingdom. The five yoke of oxen are the five physical senses, whose coarsening effect deadens our spiritual senses, causing us to disregard the call. And finally, linking our life with a being other than God in marriage displaces in our hearts him to whom it should belong exclusively. Notice in the parable that the first two people were very polite, actually. Uh, they said, uh, I pray thee, have me excused. But the third one, who'd gotten married, says, I cannot come. In Renaissance Italy, there was a devout young man who every day prayed the devotion known as the little office of the Virgin Mary. Although he had no interest in marriage, his parents arranged one for him. The wedding took place a little before noon. At its conclusion, it was time for him to recite the midday office prayers to the Virgin. So asking everyone to go on home before him, he remained in the church for his devotions. Kneeling before an image of the Virgin, at one point he recited the verse, Thou art all fair, O Virgin Mary, and in thee there is no stain. At those words, Suddenly, it was a living virgin standing there before him in place of the image. What you have said is true, she told him. I am indeed all fair, and yet you have taken unto yourself another than I. How is this? Oh, lady, he exclaimed in awe, if it is thy will, I'll put away from me this new wife. I do so will, came the answer, for if you do so, then you shall be wedded to me in the kingdom of heaven and possess it forevermore. Is this true, O virgin? He asked in wonder. Shall I truly be joined to thee in the heavens if I take no wife of earth? I have said it, and it shall be so, came the solemn assurance. Immediately he obeyed the heavenly command, dissolved the marriage, and henceforth lived as one betrothed to the Queen of Heaven. Although tens of millions of Hindus are daily reciting it, who but the monastic can absolutely and truthfully say to God, Thou alone art my mother, Thou alone art my father, Thou alone art my brother, Thou alone art my friend. Thou alone art my knowledge, thou alone art my wealth, thou alone art my everything, O my God of gods. For you see, in Sanskrit, it begins, Twamewa. Twam is thou, and Ewa means alone. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, is the commandment. The safe way to ensure our keeping of it is to have no other gods at all. In the same way, the safe way of keeping God first in our relationship with him is to have no other relationships that can overshadow that prime commitment. 
monastic life is so crucial to spiritual success that if one of his disciples merely remarked, even casually, to Swami Shivananda that he was considering taking sannyas, Shivananda would immediately take him to his room, lock him inside, go make all arrangements for the sannyas ceremony, then return and bring him out of the room to the side of the Ganges and initiate him into sannyas without delay. Shivananda was taking seriously the words of Jesus, who said to the multitudes, and not just a select few, Whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. And verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house, or parents, or brethren, or wife, or children, for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time, and in the world to come, life everlasting. Spiritual life is no easy and cheap thing. Reflection reveals that it is the most difficult and demanding pursuit there is if we intend to succeed. The price never varies. All is required of us. For this reason, Jesus advises us to first sit down and count the cost, lest we fail in our attempts and suffer a setback in our evolution. Those who, like Ananias and Sapphira in the first Christian community in Jerusalem, who desire to withhold as much as possible for themselves while wishing to be ranked with those who have given their all, are always irked when pursuing the calendar of saints to see that except for martyrs, nearly all the saints of the church, east and west, have been monastics, a considerable number of them having renounced the marriage state or whose refusal to enter it underlined its inconsistency with their spiritual goals. Rather than learn from living examples, such persons complain about the matter as though the church could do something about the fact that those who give their all receive the all. Bargain basement sanctity, that is their demand. But the Lord indicates that either we pay the price and detain, or we do not, and we fail. Whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. No exceptions, it's just that direct and simple. By exposing oneself needlessly for personal gratification, to the dangers and distractions of the world is to risk losing spiritual savor. It is a breaking of the commandment to not tempt God by foolhardiness. Monastic life is a safeguard against this folly. Does this mean that only a monk or nun can find God? Absolutely not. It does mean, though, that only those who give themselves to God 100% can find God. And the monastic life is a safer way of life, since by its nature it eliminates most elements that draw our minds and hearts away from God. This is why Holy Mother Sarda Devi said that just not being married, which to her also bore the connotation of absolute chastity, puts a man already halfway to freedom, and a woman too.
If a person can live a life in the world with all its attendant obligations and anxieties and still give himself totally to God, he will attain spiritual perfection. But how many can do such a thing? <laughs> how many are willing to do such a thing? This is why St. Paul warned that married life inclined a person to place his spouse above God in his priorities. Any observant person can bear witness that except in rare cases, this is definitely true. A man and woman should marry only at the command of God, just as a person should only become a monastic at the command of God. This applies to remaining single and non-monastic as well. There are those who need to get married for karmic, not selfish reasons, and they should do so. But it should be God's choice, not theirs. Otherwise, slowly and subtly, their ties to the world erode their hearts, causing them to turn away from him who alone should be their first love. At first, they are not aware of this, and then later on, they come to both realize and accept it without a pang of regret. Then in time, they come to like the situation and even to be proud of it, clinging to it in the face of all good sense. Let me give you an example from the words of a very dear friend of mine, an Indian devotee of Mother Anandamai. For quite some time, I had been feeling discontented with my spiritual life. Something was missing, I knew, and I began to worry that I might never find God, however much I might be doing in the way of meditation, worship, and so on. This became very intense and obsessed my mind day and night. I had to gain the vision of God. Then word came by telephone that Mataji was passing through Delhi on her way to another place, that she would be stopping over for an hour or so in the Delhi railway station. When I learned this, I rushed to the station, determined to, to demand of Mataji how I could see God. As I came onto the platform from which her train was to depart, I saw her walking up and down, back and forth, in silence. For a while, I stood there hoping to catch her eye, but I could not. So great was my impatience that when she passed opposite me, I just called out, Ma! She stopped and looked directly at me. What is it? she asked. Ma, I want to see God. Madhuji looked at me very intently for a few moments. Then she leaned her head to one side and began to smile. Do you really want to see God? She asked me very forcefully. In that split second, I knew that if I answered yes, she would tell me to become a monk. So I put my hands together in salutation and answered, No, Ma, I, I do not want to see God. Madhuji laughed and continued walking. Whatever this account, <laughs> or however this account, may affect you, it stunned me when Narayan Das told it to me. To be in such a state of life that someone would declare to her face to face that he did not want the divine vision. Madhuji did not make jokes about spiritual life. If he had wanted, she would have guaranteed his coming to know God. But he preferred to keep his world rather than gain possession of God. Death has now taken away from him at one blow 
all that he felt he could not give up, showing him that indeed he could have. But the learning is too late, for it was the cold hand of death that called him away, rather than the loving voice of God. What does he now have? Only the necessity of rebirth in a world where God no longer walks in human form. Those who wish to take their chances by clinging to worldly life may do so, but let them not complain when the natural consequences occur.